Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, July 28, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Today's Climate Report is going to make up for lost ground since we skipped our early July broadcast to make way for special live remote festival programming, a hallmark of KVMR's unique local programming. As a result, we'll start with a speed round of recent notable headlines and close with the latest political news regarding a possible new climate bill to be introduced perhaps next week in the U.S. Congress. Please note, all Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page online for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. Well, we'll start with a couple of the important notable impacts that are predicted for climate change as a fire to light under people who are concerned about taking action and what it means. Um, and we're going to then dip into lots of good news. And uh, let's start with this, though, because it's important to be aware of some of the more subtle changes that are predicted based on scientific research, how climate change could drive an increase in gender-based violence. This was in Nature. Violence against women and people from gender minorities, LGBTQ+, in the aftermath of extreme weather events is on the rise amid global warming. As extreme weather events occur more frequently, something that climate scientists say is inevitable, so too will violence towards women and people from gender minorities. That's the conclusion of a review examining events in the aftermath of floods, droughts, cyclones, and heat waves, among other weather disasters, looking at over the past two decades. The review found that extreme weather events often catalyze episodes of gender-based violence, particularly physical, sexual, and domestic abuse. According to lead author Kim Van Dalen, who studies global public health at the University of Cambridge, she said it is the most comprehensive and timely analysis of gender-based violence related to extreme weather and climate events that are expected to increase under anthropogenic climate change. Some of these events exacerbate existing poor economic and social conditions, and this can create circumstances that result in violent behavior, the latest review found. The studies include research describing effects such as mental stress, substance abuse, economic hardship, food insecurity, and poor social infrastructure occurring after the onset of extreme weather events. Well, these weather events were also linked to various forms of gender-based violence, from physical and sexual assault to forced marriage, trafficking, and psychological abuse. The reasons that extreme weather events lead to gender-based violence actually vary quite a bit across locations on the planet. In Bangladesh, for example... Young girls have been forced to marry in the aftermath of extreme weather events such as floods, in some cases because, quote, it means one less mouth to feed, according to Niaz Asadullah, an economist. The loss of crops and households due to extreme weather events puts girls under further pressure and vulnerability. The researchers also focused on people from gender minorities. The report described how people in Fiji 
Thought that an extreme weather event, Cyclone Winston, which hit the country in 2016, was a sign of divine rage against LGBTQ people. The review's authors also pointed out that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the United States, which struck New Orleans and Louisiana in 2005, there was a noticeable backlash against gay communities because others blamed them for the disaster. In other cases, transgender people have been threatened in relief shelters after extreme weather events or barred from access to them altogether. Even among the most vulnerable groups of people, the effects of extreme weather differ between cultures on the planet, as the professor of economics pointed out, saying what a drought does to women in India is very different from what it does to women in sub-Saharan Africa. This type of information is important for us as humans to recognize. As climate change is expected to increase and accelerate some of these ripple effects as well, we need to be prepared to protect people and deal with this, according to researchers. In our next interesting effects that sometimes are overlooked, this is close to home here with the Pacific Crest Trail. I will also have links on our social media page to all of these different articles for further reading. This is from the Pacific Crest Trail Association, talking about how climate change is already altering the trail experience. This is that notable trail that makes its way from Mexico up to Canada. A lot of people enjoy taking this trek. Travelers on the Pacific Crest Trail, though, in Northern California last June may have been surprised to see Mount Shasta with nearly no snow cover. And in the report, there are several effects that they're anticipating for the Pacific Crest Trail. Number one is less snow. Number two is less water on the trail. Typically, they describe people starting from the southern end of the trail in April or May when the, the heat and weather is more tolerable. So that by the time they make it up to our area in the gold country, snowmelt is happening and there is abundant water for hikers. So they're saying in addition to less snow, there will likely be less water. They're also looking at changing times and routes that it may no longer be advantageous to start a hike from the south end and hike north in April or May. It may require starting earlier. And they say that it may be all but impossible to do the reverse, start at the top and then walk southward as by the time you get to the south end, it will be unbearable. They're also expecting more fires and damage. The Dixie Fire um, damaged the Pacific Crest Trail more than any other fire in history to date. And most notably, they are saying that perhaps it may no longer be advisable or feasible to walk it in one long stretch. It may require future hikers to hike the trail in stages, taking a break, coming back when it's possible to hike the next stretch. So those are some of the impacts, increased gender-based violence as extreme weather events increase, as well as impacts to the Pacific Crest Trail. So what are people doing knowing that these are the effects possibly being looked at? And there are great articles and information out there about Gen Zers who are embracing optimism as opposed to doomism and getting things done. A quick run-through of some individuals and what they are up to. A young man, Colin Donaldson, 26, has been picking up trash from Florida's beaches every day for more than 700 days. He goes by the online name of Trash Colin. He grew up in Tampa Bay, Florida and always loved the ocean, but the way some people behaved made him angry. He said people would come up to me 
And they're like, this is my favorite beach in the world. And then I would watch them leave all their trash right in the sand. I was really mad about it, he said. So I went to my first ever beach cleanup and the dude was like, bro, all of us are mad, but you've got to fight this with positivity. I tried it and it did work. I was getting more reciprocation from the positive messages. He hasn't looked back since and somehow makes picking up trash incredibly joyful. He has now one and a half million TikTok followers who love watching his playful love of the planet and high energy personality. Many of them have now been inspired to pick up trash in their local areas. He says, people are saying, my kid loves watching you every day, and now he's out picking up trash. I just got a comment saying I was waiting for my friend's track meet to end, and I was really bored. So I just started picking up trash. I never would have thought to do that if I didn't watch your videos. Well, what about Franziska Troutman, 24, in Louisiana, doing amazing work? Down in Louisiana, she was reflecting just a couple of years ago that their state, Louisiana, has no glass recycling facility in the entire state. She was drinking with a friend and their wine bottle was going to end up in the landfill. The U.S. recycles only about a quarter of its glass. This pales in comparison with countries in Europe, which recycle between 60 and 80 percent of their glass. So Troutman and her friend decided to actually start Louisiana's only glass recycling facility. The glass is turned into sand and used to restore the state's eroding coastline. Because Louisiana, get this, loses an American football field's worth of land every hour due to coastal erosion. A football field's worth of land every hour. So while studying and with no money and growing student, growing student debt, the pair crowdfunded their first machine and began collecting bottles in the back garden of a frat house. They have diverted more than 2 million pounds of glass from landfill since then and have a huge recycling facility. On TikTok as well, Troutman answers questions from her audience with humility. Sand is the most exploited resource after water. And Troutman regularly reminds her 260,000 TikTok followers that we're in a global sand shortage. She says, you might be thinking, what about the Sahara Desert? Well, the sand we need for concrete and coastal restoration needs to be coarse and a bit angular, and desert sand is far too fine and rounded, she says in one of her videos. Well, they've caught the attention of TV hosts that have sent them checks, allowing them to buy pulverizing machines. They've been awarded National Science Foundation grants. They have now laid 15 tons of glass sand on the coast and worked with indigenous tribes to restore part of their land. She says, my message to people is always to take my story as something that you can also do. We saw an issue in our community, and instead of continuing to wait for someone else to solve it, we decided to just go for it. We didn't have any money, any recycling knowledge. We didn't know about glass and sand issues. We learned everything along the way. If you see a problem that you want to solve, just go for it. Well, Zara Bibani, 23, wants to displace the fast fashion industry by founding the world's first sustainable clothing rental company. She's just out of college and writing a book on the power of climate optimism while launching the world's first sustainable fashion rental marketplace. She's an environmentalist in Houston, Texas, about to launch what's called In the Loop, her mission to make sustainable and ethical brands more accessible to young people. For one-time renters, each piece of clothing is 75% cheaper to rent on her site than buying it at retail price. 
You get the items for three and a half weeks, return them using the included returns label on the reusable shipping bags, and then in the loop does all the cleaning, restocking, and ships out the next month's cycle. And this is all done from Biabani's parents' garage. Then lastly, there's Thomas Lawrence, 23. He's building a sustainable marketplace to take on Amazon. He's a 23-year-old entrepreneur who's building a corporation that only does good for people and the planet. Good People, Inc. wants to take on Amazon and give people an ethical, value-driven alternative. In order to sell products on his marketplace, Good People, Inc., retailers have to pass a number of regulations that Lawrence has put in place, including zero-waste packaging, no plastic use, transparency about the provenance and source of ingredients, and how staff are treated. What is it about Gen Z that is resulting in so much direct action and optimism? He says, I think that my generation and millennials are starting to realize that they have to take the matter into their own hands rather than waiting on the people that are currently in charge to help. Well, next, we'd like to talk about the records that we've been setting in the United States and California for clean, renewable energy. Just in case some of the listeners haven't heard, it's being described as a wow moment when U.S. renewable energy hit a record 28% in April. That's the amount of electricity generated by renewable resources. And that is a record high, the highest ever set for our country. It's a breakthrough number that shows how important renewable energy has become in U.S. energy markets. Now, the percentage of U.S. electricity produced by renewable energy from wind, solar, and hydro has been steadily rising. Just over 20 years ago, in 2001, it was just under 9%. April 2001 compared to April 2022 at 28%, more than tripled. From single digits 20 years ago to now almost a third of the electricity. Well, explaining the surge is that wind and solar installations are now dominating U.S. energy capacity build-outs. Basically, the only things we've added to the grid in the past decade are wind, solar, and natural gas, according to an economist and engineer at Columbia University, where he co-leads the Power Sector and Renewables Research Institute. That's happening for a couple of reasons. The first is cost. Renewables are now simply the most economically competitive power currently available. It produces electricity cheaper than natural gas and certainly nuclear power. And then there are federal and state mandates and incentives to increase the amount of clean energy, which also helps. Weather, though, is a big factor because April tends to be a particularly windy month with nice, cool and sunny temperatures. And this spring was windier than most. There's also less power coming into the grid from fossil fuels and nuclear in the spring. That's because electricity demand in the U.S. is generally lower in the spring because of mild weather. And fossil fuel and nuclear power plants use this time for maintenance and refueling, which reduces their production intentionally in the spring. And that's when wind and solar and hydro can pick up. Another surprise was this April wind and solar by themselves together produced more electricity than nuclear power plants, which doesn't typically happen. Nuclear power plants, which are considered carbon neutral, although not renewable, have reliably produced about 20% of America's electricity. But this April, it dropped to 18%, while wind and solar combined for 20%. The nuclear decrease this spring was also part a result of a shutdown of two plants in the past year, one in New York and one in Michigan. 
Well, when all U.S. carbon-neutral energy sources are added together, not just renewable like wind and hydro and solar, but you add in nuclear, which is considered carbon-neutral, that means that this April, 46% of U.S. electricity came from sources that don't contribute greenhouse gases to the environment, federal data shows. So that's a couple of records there from this April. 28% renewable energy electricity, 46% carbon neutral when you add nuclear into the mix. Well, in California, though, we can chuckle and laugh at those small numbers because California, for the first time ever in the history of the state, just ran on 100% renewable energy electricity for their grid. But fossil fuels certainly aren't fading away yet. It was a mild Sunday afternoon on May 8th when California set a historic milestone in the quest for clean energy. The sun was shining, the wind was blowing. And on that day, May 8th, the mild Sunday afternoon, the state of California produced enough renewable electricity to meet 103% of consumer demand. That broke a record set just a week earlier of 99.9%. Now, even as the record was broken, natural gas power plants were still running in California because despite the dramatic growth of renewable energy, turning off natural gas power plants still is hard to do. The reason is because it's tricky. When the sun sets and solar farms stop producing, California needs to replace that power quickly and seamlessly. However, natural gas power plants can take hours to turn off and turn on, so they simply just have to keep running all day long even though we don't need them in order to be ready for that sunset. So as a result, we exported to states around us and we sent some of our fossil fuels elsewhere. So the reason, again, that we hit 100% renewable energy is springtime is an ideal time of year for renewable energy. The days are getting longer, solar energy is on the rise, wind power and hydropower from dams that are still running along in the drought, plus Mild temperatures means that air conditioners aren't yet turned up, heating isn't running, and electricity demand is still relatively low. So solar and wind and hydro are making more than they ever do, citizens demanding less than they ever do. It was a nice time of day, and uh, that made us hit that record of 100% renewable energy. So there you have it, a couple of records being set. Also worth mentioning is uh, PG&E is revealing their storage plans in their climate strategy report, and they cut the ribbon on a giant battery energy storage facility at Moss Landing in the Monterey Bay area. PG&E has revealed it now has almost 1.5 billion watts of energy storage connected to the grid. Just about a billion of that is on the utility scale side, but then uh, a third of a billion watts of storage are customers and residential backyards and homes. The interesting thing is that uh, as soon as they flicked on the Monterey Bay Area Moss Landing substation, which has a very large new battery system, they were able to charge the battery at $10 a megawatt in the middle of the day when there was too much renewable energy. And then that evening, they were able to discharge it at $100 a megawatt hour. So it was able to save money for customers, bringing clean energy that otherwise would have been diesel generated. And according to the CEO of PG&E, Patty Pope, says people sometimes speculate that is California going too far with clean energy? Heck no, we're just getting started. And a facility like this makes it possible. And that day back in mid-April proved it. 
The CEO of the California grid operator added that another 700 million watts of energy storage would be added to our state's grid just over the course of June alone, bringing the total in the state to almost 4 billion watts of battery storage. We just passed 3 billion watts of battery storage in May. July, we now push through 4 billion watts. So the utilities and uh, customers are all working hard and adding more and more batteries to take advantage of excess solar during the day in order to then provide it back in the evenings and during sunset as an effort to shut off more fossil fuel power plants. Well, lastly, we'd like to close today's climate report with the latest breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Many people have heard about Senator Joe Manchin and his efforts to make or break climate legislation recently saying he wouldn't support any until yesterday a surprise announcement was made that he and Senator Chuck Schumer had come to a deal. And that deal is yet to actually be approved through the Senate. It's could be it's looking at could possibly be voted on next week. But these are some of the details for those that are wondering what is in there. What is in the climate bill that Joe Manchin supports and what isn't? This is an excellent analysis from The Guardian. It says, though it faces obstacles before passing, the package has been touted by jubilant Democrats as the largest climate bill ever in the U.S. Joe Manchin, the centrist West Virginia senator and coal company owner who has repeatedly thwarted Joe Biden's attempts to pass legislations to tackle the climate crisis, shocked Washington yesterday on Wednesday by saying he will support a bill aimed at cutting planet heating emissions. The $369 billion package has been touted by jubilant Democrats as the largest climate bill ever in the U.S. and possibly even the world. It still faces obstacles before passing, but the support of Manchin, a crucial swing vote in an evenly divided U.S. Senate, appears to bode well for its chances. So what's in the legislation? These are the basics of the bill. The climate spending part of it is actually part of a broader package now known as the Inflation Reduction Act. That total package is $739 billion. The majority of the bill, exactly half of it, is dedicated to confronting the climate crisis. That's $369 billion out of $739 dedicated to the climate crisis over the next 10 years. It's part of a reconciliation budget that can only be passed with all 50 Democratic votes in the Senate due to unified Republican opposition, meaning Manchin's acquiescence was critical. So what does it include to address the climate emergency? The bulk of the bill allows for large tax credits for clean energy, such as solar and wind power. For example, the solar tax credit that was looking at sunsetting next year at 22% would be raised back up to 30% and extended for another dozen years. The tax credits would also allow projects to go ahead on a grand scale. States and utilities will get $30 billion to help the transition to renewable zero carbon electricity. So states and utilities are getting support. Purchasers of clean energy will get support. There will also be a new $27 billion clean energy technology accelerator created to help advance renewable technologies. $3 billion will be given to the U.S. Postal Service alone to electrify its fleet of trucks. If you've been a regular listener to the Climate Report, you know that that's been a sticking point as the U.S. Postal Service looks at finally revamping a large part of its entire fleet. And there was a big push to electrify it. 
the administrator under the uh, Trump administration was pushing for a lot of fossil fuel vehicles to be bought. It looks like this would give $3 billion to the U.S. Postal Service to nullify that conversation electrifying the fleet. There would also be a new program to drive down leaks of methane, a potent greenhouse gas from oil and gas drilling operations. A further $20 billion is going to be spent to promote climate-friendly agricultural practices. And then another $5 billion to make American forests better prepared for the wildfires that increasingly threaten them due to global heating. So again, tax credits for clean energy, support for states and utilities to transition to renewables, a clean energy technology accelerator, the U.S. Postal Service will be able to switch to electric vehicles, a new program to drive down leaks of methane, a new program to promote climate-friendly agricultural practices, and help to make American forests better prepared. Well, what will people themselves be able to access directly from the bill? The legislation includes the continuing tax credit for electric vehicles worth up to $7,500. There's also a scheme, a $9 billion plan focused on low-income households to electrify home appliances and make dwellings more energy efficient. Further tax credits spread out over the next decade will make it easier to buy heat pumps, water heaters, and rooftop solar. Then disadvantaged communities that suffer the brunt of fossil fuel pollution have also been recognized with $60 billion dedicated to environmental justice projects across the U.S., Well, are there any criticisms of the bill? The spending is a big reduction on the $550 billion initially envisioned by Biden and Democratic leaders, but sunk by Manchin's opposition. So originally $550 billion for the climate, and instead it's going to be $369 billion. The final bill amounts to far less, even over 10 years, than what the U.S. spends annually on its military. The bill also doesn't include any mechanism to specifically phase out any fossil fuels, the primary cause of the climate crisis. And indeed, it looks to lock in their use for decades to come due to a compromise struck with Manchin. Because under this deal, regulations around oil and gas drilling will be loosened. And new leases will be offered in places such as the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska. Environmentalists have called this agreement a climate suicide pact. Well, how significant is this? Despite its imperfections, the bill is expected by both its authors and independent analysts to allow the U.S. to cut its emissions by 40% by the end of this decade. That brings the U.S. close to the scientific goal of slashing emissions in half this decade, which scientists have said is imperative if the world is to avoid catastrophic climate change. So it would get us theoretically 80% of the way there, leaving that additional 20% to be handled by individuals and other means. So what does it mean for the world? The U.S. is the world's largest economy, the world's second largest carbon polluter, and a superpower in diplomatic and military might. Its failure thus far to meaningfully act on the climate crisis has constrained global efforts. And so this legislation, if passed, could prove to be a historic turning point. World governments meeting later this year at U.N. climate talks in Egypt could be emboldened to do more to cut their own emissions, while the direct impact of the U.S. reductions could mean that heat waves, floods, and other disasters will be less severe than they would have been otherwise. 
Well, in some key points for people in our area, because there is a robust market, as there always has been here in our area for solar and storage, we're considered early adopters for both on-grid and off-grid solar and storage. And for people considering making that investment, the details again are that the U.S. is looking to extend the tax credit to the year 2032 at 30%, and then continuing in a couple more years at lower levels. And most crucially, the 30% tax credit would also apply specifically to battery storage, whether or not it's installed standalone by itself or installed with solar. This would enable the retrofit of a battery to a solar system while taking advantage of the credit or simply just installing batteries. It would make the cost of installing battery backup 30% less if you qualify for this new tax credit, which again, has yet to be voted on and pass Congress. Well, that's all the latest news that's fit to print here in the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb for daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips. There's a Climate Report social media page. And as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 